Thanks for joining us today for TCC at Home. Uh, we're excited that uh, you're gathered there in your home, uh, worshiping with us here at Treasuring Christ Church. Uh, we're uh, going to be studying uh, the book of Ephesians over the next few months uh, as we began a new sermon series last week entitled, We Are the Church. Uh, and so this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. So if you have a Bible or you're using your phone or uh, if you're on the, the church online platform, you can see the Bible uh, function that's below. We'd love uh, for you to look at God's Word with us today as we, as we walk through it. Um, a few years ago, Emily and I, my wife, we started watching a TV show called This Is Us. Uh, many of you perhaps are familiar with it. It's a, really a story that's resonated uh, with all kinds of people. Uh, it's a story that I think resonates with us because it shows uh, both the beauty and the brokenness of, of family. It, it relates to us on a lot of different levels. Uh, perhaps uh, you've, you've lost a, a parent or you've experienced the, the struggles and sometimes dysfunction between siblings and, and just the unexpected trials and setbacks and curves that life throws at us. And uh, when, when you watch This Is Us, uh, you, you really get a, a picture uh, of of the of family and, and what it what it looks like and in all of its uh, beauty and brokenness and one of the things that's particularly striking to me in the show is how it really traces the story of the kids of Randall Kevin and and Kate uh, in light of their parents uh, and so so what happens in, in the show if you're familiar with it in between you know tissues and dabbing your eyes because you're crying a little bit it's going from the present day to flashbacks back to the 80s when uh, Jack and his wife uh, were, were just getting started, and, and it follows the lives of the kids through the lens of their parents, and really the, the way to understand Randall, Kevin, and Kate is, is particularly through uh, their connection to and their grieving the loss of their father. I don't know if you've had that kind of experience where you, you really only come to know someone in light of understanding their background, perhaps their, their parents, when you, when you have a friend or maybe a significant other and you, you meet their parents and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's why you are the way that you are. Or maybe you have that internal moment where you're like, oh my goodness, I sound just like my mom or I'm just like my dad. You know, we, we all have maybe those moments in life. And in a similar way, when we talk about the church, to understand the church we have to understand who God is. So we, we could say it this way, to understand the church, you must understand who God is, who, who he is and what he has done. And, and honestly, as we walk through the book of Ephesians, my prayer for treasuring Christ is that we would, we would grow in our love for the church and our commitment to the mission of the church. Uh, and, and really, as we look at the book of Ephesians and consider what it has to say about the church, it's, it's also an invitation for us to grow in our love for God and understand who He is and what He's done for us. And so today, if you're joining us and, and you're exploring Christianity or thinking about what it means to be a part of the church, curious or disconnected from the church, but willing uh, to, to give it a go and, and try to, to reconnect or, or maybe hurt by the church like we talked about last week, and you're looking for answers, the answers are found in who God is. And what he's done for us. And today we're going to come to Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. And it's going to bring us to the heart of what Ephesians has to say about God. And so as we look at this passage, uh, I believe we not only will see who God is, but we'll see who we are. So, so let me see if, if you're tracking with me. Last week we, we tried this together. Uh, well, I did it here and hopefully you did it at home. But let me ask you, who's the church? I, I, I think I heard you, but I, I'm not quite sure. Who's the church? I actually can't hear you, but I'm hoping you're saying we are, right? Because the church isn't a place, the church isn't an event, but the church is a people. Uh, and, and as we look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, we're going to see who we are as a people in light of who God is. So, so track with me as we look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. We're, we're going to begin just by reading the, the introduction to these verses in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
This one verse is really an introduction to what verses 3 through 14 is all about. Uh, Verses 3 through 14 in the original language is really one long, complex sentence that uh, you get this sense as Paul began to to, uh, rejoice in and praise God that that he just couldn't stop, that it just kind of snowballed. He continually describes who God is and what he has done. But as we look at this uh, this. This one verse that, that introduces this passage, I want us to see two things about God in relation to the church. And the first is this, that the church exists because of God. The church exists because of God. In fact, as I, I think about this passage and, and I look at what Paul is saying about God, uh, it, it strikes me that he says in verse, um, in verse uh, 15, uh, excuse me, down in verse 17, uh, that he prays that God would, would give us a spirit of wisdom uh, and an understanding to open our eyes, verse 18, so that we might know the hope that we have, the, the riches uh, of his inheritance towards us, and the power that's at work in all those who believe. It's like Paul, Paul is describing who God is in verses 3 through 14, and then he prays uh, in verses 15 through 23, God, help us to understand the fullness of who you are. And so as we read this, I just my desire for, for myself, but for us, is that God would just give us eyes to see him um, and, and to understand uh, who he is and to praise him like Paul does in these verses. So we said that the church exists because of God. Well, who is God? Well, throughout this passage, but especially here in verse 3, we see that God is triune. God is trinity. Uh, this is foundational to the Christian faith. We, we declared this earlier in our service as we, as we read the Nicene Creed and, and, and you heard that the confession of the church from all the way back in 325 that's continued to this day that it didn't just begin in 325 but it begins in the scriptures as who God reveals himself to be to us that there is one God and that one God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A mystery that's profound and, and, and yet it jumps off the pages of Scripture to us because this is who God is. And understanding God as triune, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is foundational to understanding who we are as people made in His image, made for relationship, made for fellowship. It, it's foundational to understanding what, what God has done not only in creation but what God does in salvation, which we're going to look at in our passage today. It's, uh, it's who God is. It's the truest expression of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when, when we say that the church exists because of God, it exists because uh, that, that God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has brought the church into existence through what he has done uh, through Christ and through the Spirit. We could say it this way in verse, verse 3. What we see is that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Holy Spirit. So God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack that. The first, it begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. So so we see here in verse 3 that God the Father is the source of every spiritual blessing. He's the one who's blessed us. It means he's the initiator. He's the one who takes the first step. The, the subject of every verb in verses 3 through 14 uh, centers on God. God is the one acting. So it's God the Father who chooses. It's God the Father who predestines. predestines. It's God the Father who bestows His love upon us. It's God the Father who reveals His plan to us. It's God the Father who gives us an inheritance. So God the Father is the source of every spiritual blessing, but but it goes on to say that he has blessed us in Christ. This two-word phrase occurs 11 times, either in Christ or in him or through Christ in verses 3 through 14, and uh, and it uh, fills the book of Ephesians. It speaks to our union with Christ that God's blessing God's blessings are for those who are in Christ, those who are united with Christ. So Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, has always been for all eternity. And yet, 2,000 years ago, he took on flesh and he came to live among us to accomplish God's plan of redemption, to bring it 
to, to completion, to, 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 to fully make sacrifice for sin. And so this two-word expression is, is really sums up what the Christian life is all about, that we are united with Christ. That, that, that phrase means that all that Jesus accomplished in his death and in his resurrection, all that he is doing today, we share in because we are united to him. One author put it this way, to be in Christ is to partake of all that Christ has done, all that he is, and all that he will ever be. To be in Christ is to partake of all that Christ has done, all that he is, and all that he will ever be. Paul goes on to to continue to use this phrase to to show us that that it's the work of Christ on our behalf that, that allows us to experience the blessings that God the Father initiates and, and desires to give to us. All the way back in the, the ninth century, there's a, um, a bishop in Constantinople named Photius. Uh, and uh, as he read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, he, uh, he honed in on this emphasis on being in Christ. He said that God has blessed us through the Son. He chose us through the Son. He adopted us through the Son. He shed his favor through the Son. And how through the Son? Oh, what marvelous thing, he says. It's through the cross, through his blood. Do you see the richness of his grace and the exceedingly abundant and unutterable, the mercy that he has shown to us? And not only these things, but he also has made known to us the mystery of his will. Through what means? Even this, he says, came through the Son. Everything's through the Son, whose good pleasure agrees in every way with God the Father. Every spiritual blessing comes from God the Father, but those spiritual blessings are only for those who are united with Christ through faith, those who have trusted upon his work on the cross. But then it goes on to say that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing speaks to the work of the Holy Spirit, that God's blessings are brought to bear in our life through the Holy Spirit. We, we often, when we hear the word spiritual, we, we sometimes contrast it with material. There's material and there's spiritual, and that's not necessarily wrong. In the Old Testament, oftentimes God's blessings are spoken of as material blessings. God blessed Abraham and gave him many cattle and gave him many children and gave him the land. And, and we see blessings understood uh, not exclusively, but uh, especially in a material way. However, spiritual here speaks uh, of the, the gifts that God gives us, the blessings that he gives us come through the Holy Spirit. So they're spiritual, not merely because they're pertaining to our soul rather than to something physical. They're spiritual because they're derived from, they come from the Holy Spirit. So listen to what, what Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, when um, he was teaching his disciples before he goes to the cross and is resurrected. It's just one short verse. He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, if I don't go away, the helper will not come. The helper being a reference to the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's an astonishing phrase. Just just think about walking with Jesus for three years. Being with him. Listening to him. Being close enough to, to touch him. To see him with your eyes. And he tells those who had been walking with him, it's for your advantage that I go away because when I do, I'm sending the Spirit. To have the Spirit in us is better, at least for now, Jesus says, than Jesus being with us in the flesh. Did you you hear that? To have the Spirit in us is even better than having Jesus with us, at least for now. When he goes away, he sends his spirit, and his spirit comes and indwells the believer who puts their trust in Jesus, who's united to Christ, and it's through the spirit that all that Jesus accomplished for us is brought to bear on our life. It's how we experience those blessings. So before before Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit would, would often, especially in the Old Testament, you'll see the Spirit would come upon a person and allow them to accomplish great acts for God. But after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit comes not upon believers, but He comes to dwell in believers, to assure them of God's love and to empower them for obedience and mission. 
So the Spirit indwells every person who puts their trust in Christ. And the Spirit is at work in every person who's put their trust in Christ. And not only that, but the Spirit is at work through every person who's put their trust in Christ. Let me say it this way. Say it again. After Jesus' resurrection, all who believe in Christ, the Spirit comes to dwell in us to assure us that we belong to God and to empower us to obey God and to be on mission. So the blessings initiated by God the Father and accomplished by God the Son are experienced in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said at his last supper when he was with his disciples as he raised the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is my blood shed for your sins. When, when Jesus goes to the cross, he, he brings about a new covenant that God talked about in the Old Testament, that he promised in the Old Testament. And that new covenant was going to be defined, if you want to look at it in Jeremiah 31, by God's personal presence in our lives. By giving us a new heart to obey God. By giving us the forgiveness of sins. By uh, uh, coming into our lives so that we personally know Him and follow Him. In practical terms, because we have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who assures us of God's love for us. The, The Holy Spirit is the one who assures us that we belong to God even when we don't feel it. It, it. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand God's Word. Helps us understand what God is doing, who gives us wisdom uh, to navigate life's decisions. It's also the Holy Spirit who reminds us of what's true when we're struggling, when you're going through uh, something difficult. It's, it's the Spirit working to recall to our minds what God has said. It's also the Spirit that, that enables us to, to make Christ known, to, to talk to others about Jesus. When, when your palms are sweaty and you're stammering over your words, it's the Holy Spirit who empowers you to lovingly say a word of truth and grace. It's the Holy Spirit who also convicts us of sin when we would rather indulge in our sinful desires. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And and when I think about the work of the Holy Spirit, in some ways it's it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's it's like this thing that's out there and and it doesn't feel very concrete. But but here's here's what I would say. When, When the Bible talks about the work of the Spirit, it means that it's the Spirit who, who is constantly at work in our lives to, to enable us to, to follow after God. To walk in the Spirit is to, is to come to God in dependence and ask Him to enable us to obey Him, to love Him, to, uh, to say no to sin, to, to share the gospel. And, and when we ask Him that, walking in the Spirit is then trusting that God's going to be with us when we take the next step. It's the spirit at work within us that makes Christianity different than legalism and moralism. It's not just, here's what God says, go try your best. It's the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that when God commands us to walk in obedience, when God calls us to live on mission, he gives us his spirit to enable us to do it. So we obey and we live in response to what God has said, not not trying our best, but by living in dependence. On God, which is truly living in dependence on the Spirit. So the church exists because God the Father has united us to Christ and given us His Spirit. Without this work, there is no church. To understand who we are, we must understand who God is. And God the Father has united us to Christ and given us His Spirit. This is, this is our identity. We, we have to have a Godward focus Because we don't exist without God. The church isn't our strategy to make a difference in the world. The church isn't a club of people who have common beliefs. The church is the people of God who exist because of who God is and what He has done. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is our confession. And and what I want you to, 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 to really feel and understand today is that this is the confession upon which the church has been built. This is, is what the church has said for, for ages, that this is who we are. To understand who we are is to understand what we, what we believe about God. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. We believe in God the Holy Spirit. We believe in His church. 
which exists because of who he is and what he's done. So we see in verse 3 that the church exists because of God, but we also see in verse 3 that the church exists to praise God. Did, did you notice that, that Paul's beginning is, is actually a beginning of praise? He says, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's really a prayer, uh, but a, a prayer of praise. It's, it's Paul reflecting on, on who God is, and it's this, uh, this overflow of praise. So we bless God, according to verse 3, in response to his blessings to us. And as we think about what it means to, uh, to praise God, to, to worship him, it's always in response to what he's done for us. Now, the term is, is slightly different than how we use it in reference to people. Sometimes we say, oh, well, bless you, you know, uh, and, and kind of a, uh, a response to maybe something that somebody has done for us. And, you know, we say that in response to a sneeze, but we also say that when somebody has done something kind for us, we say, what a blessing you've been to me when, when they've done something for us, a kind spirit or encouraging words. But it's a little different here. It's, it's not merely just a, you know, thanks God for what you did for me. But, but really, God's blessed when we praise him. He's blessed when praise for all that he is comes forth from our hearts and from our lips. And to truly enjoy God is to praise him. That's, that's why if, if you're just kind of interested in learning facts about God, but they're cold and distant, then you don't really know God. You might know something about him, but to know him is to praise him. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. They, they tell each other, they love each other because they enjoy one another. It's, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author or you, you, you name a new artist or, or a new show and not be able to tell anyone how good it is. Upon seeing a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then having to keep silent because the people with you care no more for it than a tin can in the ditch. It's like when you see something that you enjoy, it's not complete until you praise what you've experienced. The Catechism, Westminster Catechism, says that to glorify God, that our, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But Lewis says, we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. And commanding us to glorify him, to praise him, God is actually inviting us to enjoy him. So I know perhaps as you uh, hear that unpacked, you, you say, what exactly are we saying? What I'm saying is that the more that Ephesians 1 is unpacking who God is and what he's done for us, what it should lead us to is to praise. It should lead us to worship. The church is at its best when it's focused on God and worshiping Him. And a worship that doesn't just come out in song, but a worship that comes out in our life fully devoted to Him. And we know that this is the purpose of the church because it's not only the blessing of verse 3, but three times in this passage we see this phrase, to the praise of His glory. In verse 6 it says that God has chosen us and predestined us to adoption to the praise of His glorious grace. And verse 12 says, God has given us an inheritance in himself to the praise of his glory. Once more in verse 14, as Paul concludes this section of God's work of saving his people and keeping us all the way until the end through the Spirit, he says that all of this is to the praise of his glory. The church exists to praise God, which means that we deeply enjoy who God is. We're deeply satisfied by what God has done for us. So <clears throat> the church exists because of God, and the church exists to worship, to praise God. So why do we praise Him? What should be on our hearts and our minds as we praise God? That's what verses 4 through 14 is all about. 
Verse 4 begins with the statement, even as. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as it says he chose us and predestined us. The, the even as is maybe uh, a little uh, better understood or functions to, to really explain the, the reasons or, uh, or why we praise God. So, so that's, that's what I want us to, to dwell on here. We understand that to, to know the church is to know who God is. But, but let's press in a little further and say, well, we know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but what exactly has He done? What exactly should we be praising God for and responding in delight uh, to what He has done? Look at verses 4 through 6. We see that He chose us. In verses 4 through 6, it says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us, it says in verse 4. He predestined us in verse 5. This is talking about the same thing. Predestination is referring to God's initiative in choosing us. And, and look when this happens. All the way back in verse 4, it says that God chose us, if you see there in the passage, before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, one of my favorite authors, John Stott, says, God put us and Christ together in his mind. He chose us before the foundations of the world. And he goes on in verse 5 and says, In love he predestined us, and he predestined us according to his will, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not on the basis of who we are. It's not on the basis of what we have done. It's not even on the basis of the foreknowledge of, of how we would respond to God. God's choosing or, or election, as it's understand in Christian theology, is, <clears throat> is really like every truth about God. It's full of mystery and full of a little controversy. <clears throat> Some people might push back against this idea of saying that God chose us. They might say, well, didn't I choose God? Right? I, I responded. I chose God. Well, yes, you did. You did indeed. Choose him and freely, the Bible says. But only because in eternity past, God first chose you. Well, didn't I decide for Christ? Didn't I make the decision to, to surrender to him? You did, freely. Responding to what Christ had done on your behalf, you responded and surrendered to him, but only because in eternity past, God first decided for you. Someone else might say, you know, I can't square the fact that God chooses some and not others. And, and honestly, as, as Christians, we're people who are under authority. And, uh, and when we read the Bible, I think what we can escape is the fact that God does choose. That much is clearly stated throughout the Scriptures. You see it here in Ephesians. You see it in Romans. You see it in 1 Peter. You see it in multiple places throughout the Scriptures. I can't explain election any more than I can explain it away. But if I were to reject it, if I were to say, I don't like it that, God, you say that you choose some, and, and yet apparently there are others that you don't choose, think about what, what I would be saying if I said, I, I just can't accept that. I would be saying, I can't imagine that God wouldn't do things like I would do it. I, I couldn't imagine that God would do it differently than I would do it. It doesn't seem right. I know the mystery as we, as we see God saying that he's chosen us in Christ, how it might hit us. But, but here's, here's how I would encourage us to think about God's choosing, God's electing. Election, J.I. Packer said, is a family secret of the children of God. We understand election on the other side of faith. We, we don't know who else God has chosen <clears throat> we, we can't say that I'm chosen and you're not chosen. No, we, we don't know those things. We, we, <clears throat> we only know that God's chosen us because we've responded to the gospel and, and we've seen what Christ has done for us and God assures us and comforts us in his word that, that he's chosen us, that he's put his love upon us. So what we do know, Packer says, is that, we <clears throat> uh, that had we not been chosen for life, we wouldn't be believers now. And secondly... As chosen believers, we rely on God to finish the work that he began in us. 
The fact that God chooses should comfort everyone who belongs to God. It should comfort us that, that we, we are in his family. It, it, it's something that, 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 that brings a, a peace and a comfort to the follower of Christ. It's not a weapon to be used against anybody. It's a truth to encourage. It's a truth to, to hold us up. But, but it also does this. We see in, in Acts when Paul is, is a little fearful and, and overwhelmed about taking the gospel into a particular city. God appears to him, speaks to him in a dream, and he says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking the gospel, for I have many people in this city. The fact that God chooses, that God is sovereign in our salvation, should comfort us and compel us towards others to share the gospel, because God desires that none should perish but that all should come to repentance and to eternal life through faith in Christ. God chooses us. What what a great mystery and what a beautiful truth that comforts us and compels us. And we haven't been chosen as an end in and of itself. We've been chosen for something. Uh, If you remember back in the day at recess, uh, you know, the time came to, to play a game and you had the team captains and um, I was never good enough to be a team captain, uh, but the team captains were, you know, somehow selected and I guess self-selected often, you know, uh, they selected themselves and then everybody else lines up and they choose their team uh, <clears throat> and you're all standing there in a line. And uh, as I thought about this, I thought back and I was comforted by the fact that, you know, I wasn't often chosen last, but I, I don't think I was hardly ever chosen first either, you know, so I was somewhere in the pack. But once you were chosen, honestly, it didn't matter, even if you were the last person chosen. Once you were chosen, it didn't matter because you were chosen for a purpose. You were chosen for that team to accomplish something, to win, to play the game. And Paul says that we've been chosen not just to make us, you know, cushy and comfortable in and of ourselves. We've been chosen for a purpose. He says he's chosen us in verse 4 in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God's chosen us to be holy, to be blameless, to, to be <clears throat> chosen, to, to be called to God means that we, we are called to, to be set apart for him, for our lives to reflect him. We, we saw last week that we have a new identity when we come to Christ and we believe the gospel. We are called saints, holy ones. That's our new status. And now Paul is saying that that status is worked out in our lives based upon the, the comfort that God has called us to himself and chosen us for himself, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Look, if you're on God's team, holiness is the jersey that you wear. Holiness is what God's people are about. So so when we think about being believers, being a follower of Christ, it means that God chose us. What what grace, what what great truth. It says that that this has come as a result of his purpose towards, towards us and to the praise of his glorious grace. But it means that, that we're called to, to actually follow him, that our lives should reflect him, that, that we begin to pursue holiness in our daily life. And holiness isn't like a stuffy term of, you know, that, that should make us think about you know, old Victorian Puritans or something. But, but holiness is, is living your life with God at the center and saying, God, you get to call the shots. What I love is going to be the things that, that you love. If there are things in my life that, that you don't love, that you call me to turn away from, I'm going to turn away from those things. The things that you call me to pursue, I'm going to pursue. The things you call me to do, I'm going to be willing to do. God, where you call me to go, my, my yes is on the table, and I'm willing to go and do whatever you call me to do. My life is to be set apart for God. That's what a church is about. A church isn't, isn't just about us kind of getting together to do our thing. Church is us about, about, the church is about us being God's people, doing his thing, which first and foremost is defined by holiness. But we also are chosen for adoption. It says in verse 5 that he predestined us, chose us beforehand for adoption as sons through Jesus. What, what comfort that God chose us to be in his family. We belong to him. We're sons and daughters of God. As I was thinking about this, this truth that God's chosen us 
to be in his family, that he's adopted us as sons and daughters. I, I remember a few, um, a little while back now during uh, Billy Graham's funeral, they televised it and um, <clears throat> really did a great job just reflecting on Billy Graham's life and, and how God used him to, to preach the gospel uh, literally to, to millions around the world. But the, the one person's testimony that stuck out to me the most was, was Ruth Graham one of uh, Billy Graham's daughters. <clears throat> and Ruth got up to share during, during the funeral, and she said, you know, I've come to learn that everybody has a Billy Graham story. Everybody she meets as, they, uh, talk, as she talks to them, they, they tell her a story about going to, to one of um, Billy Graham's gatherings to hear the gospel preached in some stadium in New York or California or somewhere else. And, <clears throat> and she says, I, I have my own Billy Graham story. And she begins to, to go on to describe her, her life and the journey in her life. And uh, after <clears throat> um, <clears throat> her husband unexpectedly died, her kids were older, her family encouraged her to, uh, to kind of get some space. And, and uh, she had some connections out west, I think, in, in Arizona, and they encouraged her to move out there. And she got plugged into a healthy church. And pretty quickly after she moved out there, she, in her words, she met another uh, she met a handsome widower, uh, and they began to pursue a relationship, and they, they were interested in getting married quickly, soon after all that had transpired with her, her previous husband's passing. And, and her family, uh, you know, were really cautious about what was happening. They said, just take it slow. It's awesome that you found somebody you like, but slow down. Take it, take it easy. And, um, and, and she, she didn't heed the advice of her children, who said, Mom, we love you, but slow down. She didn't heed the advice of her mom, who said, you know, honey, I don't think this is, this is wise. Even her father, I think, was doing uh, a gathering, a message over in um, <clears throat> somewhere in, I believe it was South Korea at the time, uh, called and said, uh, you know, my daughter, I want you to wait. Be, be patient here. There's a lot that's going on in your life. You've experienced a lot. Take your time. She didn't listen to her family. She didn't listen to her dad. And she was married, <clears throat> I think it was close to New Year's, and she said within 24 hours she realized she had made a terrible mistake. What she thought was great wasn't great. Things uh, went from, uh, from bad to worse, and uh, within a matter of weeks, she was divorced and facing the long drive back home to the mountains of North Carolina. And she says as she thought about driving home, as she was driving home, she just thought about what her dad was going to say when she got there. You know, as a, as a child, you never want to disappoint your parents. As a daughter, that uh, thought of disappointing a father perhaps looms in your mind. And she says, just imagine disappointing your father when he's Billy Graham, you know. And, and she's driving home just thinking about what her dad is going to say to her when she pulls up in the driveway. And she says she lived, the Grahams lived up on a mountain, so she was winding up the mountain going to her dad's house. She pulled into the driveway, almost just overcome with tears tears her father was on the porch and as she got out of the car and went up to the front porch her dad <clears throat> greeted her with open arms and said welcome home and <clears throat> as I heard her testimony and I thought about the picture that Billy Graham no doubt an imperfect man an imperfect father in that moment reveals the very heart of God towards us as his children. The gesture most natural to God is not a pointed finger, but open arms. The gesture most natural to God is not a pointed finger, but open arms. This is who God is. It's the kind of church that he's calling us to be. We, we know we have nothing to offer apart from God. We know that we're ultimately no different than anybody apart from the grace of God. We've been humbled by our sin and humbled by God's extravagant, extravagant grace towards us. God choosing us is, is no excuse for our sin. We know that we're a people under construction, but the blueprint that God has for us is marked with holiness. God's open arms remind us that we belong to Him, not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done towards us in love through Christ. God can hold His arms open to us because of what Christ has done for us 
on the cross, which we see in verses 7 through 8, that not only has He chosen us, but He's redeemed us. Verse 7 goes on to say that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Verse 7 says God's worthy of our praise because He's given us redemption. And redemption means the deliverance uh, by payment of a price a term that was used in the ancient world in reference to the purchasing of someone out of slavery or servitude. The believer has been purchased out of slavery and bondage to sin through Christ. And how through Christ? It says in verse 7, through His blood, a reference to the cross. The price of our redemption was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He died in our place and for our sins. Paul, Paul makes this explicit when he's, he equates redemption with the forgiveness of trespasses. That we are redeemed. What does that mean? That we are set free from the guilt and the bondage of sin. And notice what Paul's saying here. He's not just saying that we've been redeemed in the past. He's saying here that we have redemption now. The possession of every believer is redemption. Currently, we are free from sin free from its guilt, free from its power. If you have a personal relationship with Christ, you're free. Sin doesn't have the final say anymore. It might be getting the upper hand right now, but you have redemption in Christ. This is the encouragement that when we, when we follow Christ, we are a work under construction, but, but all the while as we are under construction, the, the, work, the, the tool that God uses to, to motivate us and to compel us towards the completion of the project that God is at work in us is redemption, the redemption that comes through Christ. How can I be confident that God is going to forgive me when I sin? Because we have redemption through Christ. Oh, I'm so tired of struggling with this have redemption in Christ. It's our present possession. But if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, currently you're carrying a weight. You're carrying around a a bag with, with stones in it, reminding you of the weight of your sin. God's calling you to let it go. No, no, no. In fact, he's saying, let me take it and let me shatter it so that you'll be free. That's what God offers us in Christ. This can only be described as extravagant grace. Look what he says. He says that this was according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. Friends, I think we think too little of God's grace. I know some of you, some of you can give me a great theology of grace. How much of it are you allowing to affect your day-to-day life? How much of you are, are you allowing God's grace to shape how you think about God and how you think God thinks about you and how you approach your life? God's grace to us is rich. God's grace to us is extravagant. He's lavished it upon us. This is what should awaken our hearts to worship. When we say that we exist, the church exists to worship God, we exist to worship God because we have a great redemption through Christ. He's redeemed us. Do you know his redemption? Are we living out this redemption? And I think this is as a church where we have to keep coming back to this. You know, sometimes I think we think to ourselves, well, maybe we can get beyond the gospel. We've been talking a lot about the gospel. Maybe we need to go on to something else. And no doubt we'll talk about different topics, but every topic comes back to the gospel because we don't get beyond the gospel. We only go deeper in the gospel. And as we go deeper in the gospel, understanding what God has done for us in Christ, it awakens within us a greater praise for God, a greater worship for God. He's redeemed us, but it says it goes on in verses 8 through 10 and shows us that God has made known to us his plan. The abundance of God's grace in verse 8 has has come about that he's lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
God has revealed his plan to us. And that plan, he says, is the mystery of his will. Verse, verse 10 describes it this way. It's the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on things on earth. We know as we look at Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13, that God's plan isn't a secret that like only a few people know. When, when God talks about the mystery of his will, he's talking about something that was previously unknown that God is now revealing to all people through Christ. And that plan in chapter 3 is a plan to bring Jew and Gentile together into one family in the church through faith in Christ. And now in verse 1, he's taking it beyond that. He's not only saying that God's plan is to unite Jew and Gentile in the church through faith in Christ, but God's plan is for both of his creations, not only the church, but the universe. He's going to unite all things together under the authority of Christ. All of, all of the universe exists to be brought under the authority of Christ, and the church has Jesus as its head. Where does God reveal this plan to us? He reveals it in his word. And whom does this plan come together? It comes together in Jesus. Because of what God has done in Christ, he's revealed to us his plan. His plan from eternity past which shapes our everyday present reality. It means that we should be a church who are grounded in God's word and a church who is focused on Jesus. What do we do here at Treasuring Christ? We, we delight in Jesus. We treasure Jesus above everything else because God's plan for all eternity centers upon Jesus and what he's doing in his church. He's revealed his plan to us, but he finally shows us that he sealed us. He sealed us. In verses 11 through 14, we, we see this truth in, in particular. In, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 13 and 14, Paul describes the Holy Spirit's work as, uh, as one who is the guarantee of our inheritance is what he says, uh, that the, the Holy Spirit has, has been given to us until we acquire the possession of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. That, that language of inheritance takes us back to verse 11. Paul says we've obtained an inheritance in Christ. On the surface, we think of inheritance in the sense of what we get when someone dies. Well, Paul's saying here that it's not just what we've gotten because of Christ and what he's done through his death and his resurrection, but, but really when the word inheritance is used, it's, it's used to refer to God making a people for himself. It means that we belong to God. We have become God's special possession because of, that we're united to Christ. He's ours. More importantly, we are his we belong to him. And Paul tells us that this, is, this can be true for us, particularly through the gospel. Look in verse, verse 12. He says, this is so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him and Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel, you heard it, you believed in him, and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's believing in the gospel that that brings us to belonging to God. And when we belong to him, we believe in the gospel, we're sealed by the spirit, which means that we're kept secure until the end. It says that he will keep us until we acquire possession of our inheritance, until God brings it fully about in the end. It comes through the gospel. How do we know that we can belong to God? It comes through believing the gospel. You know, I, th I think as we talk about that truth. It's not just believing certain facts or certain truths or principles. It's about knowing a person. The gospel is about entering into a relationship with a person. And church, this is, this is who we are. We're, we're Jesus people. We, we know the person who is Jesus, and, and, and that is what defines us. And when we know the person of Jesus, we, we have the spirit of Jesus living in us, applying the truths and the work of Jesus to our lives. And if you don't know him, I'm not asking you to, to just assent to some fact or some truth. I'm inviting you into a personal relationship with him. That's what, that's what God is doing. He's inviting you into a personal relationship with him where you, you see your need for him. Yes, I agree, God, I need you. The Bible says that we're sinners. And I can't change that. But I know that you didn't leave me in my sin. 
but the gospel says that you died for me. There's redemption. There's forgiveness of sins because of your death on the cross. And you rose from the dead. And God, I don't want to live my way. I want to live your way. We, we want you to know Jesus, to have a personal relationship with him. So let us know. Text the number on your screen to, to let us follow up with you, to talk with you about what that means. Or if you have questions, let us enter into those questions with you. And as, as we think about this truth as believers, <clears throat> it means that we're secure God is keeping us. Ephesians 4.30 says that, uh, that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom we're sealed for the day of redemption. God began a work of redemption in us through Christ, and he will keep us until the end by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Romans 8, 15 through 17 says that we didn't receive the Holy Spirit uh, or spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father, and the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified. The Spirit is at work within us, assuring us, securing us, keeping us till the end. God chose us. He redeemed us. He made known his plan to us and sealed us. This is who God is. And in light of who he is, we know who we are. Who's the church? We are. We're his people. If we're united to Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, to understand who God is, to understand who we are, is to understand who God is. So, so what I, my pray for us as a church is that we're a church who fixes our eyes on our great God who initiated our salvation, who accomplished it in Christ, and who applies it to our lives by the Spirit. This is who we are. We're the church. We exist because of God, and we exist to worship God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, as we, as we take in the truth of who you are, God, I pray that <clears throat> there's anyone who hasn't yet, has yet to put their trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn to you and trust in you and God, would you help us as a church not to, not to focus on first what we need to do or what we're called to, but would you help us to focus on you? God, I, I pray that you, you help us to become a church that's, that, that grows deeper in understanding you, understanding who you are and what you have done for us. And God, let that motivate us. Let that compel us to live a life that, that praises you, that worships you. Let us be a church defined not by a pointed finger, but by open arms. Let us be a church defined by the cross. Let us be a church defined by your spirit actively at work in us so that we might reflect you. Father, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name.